Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. might be easy to say that telework is the reason behind empty office spaces. That's partially true, but the Government Accountability Office says agencies' office space problems are much more complicated. The question of office space came up again in a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing last week. Here with the details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. All right, so I guess, first of all, why are they worried about office space and what did they have to say about it? The reason that they're worried about it is, of course, because they're still taking a much closer look at the telework of federal employees after a few years after the pandemic. And we've seen several hearings now from the House Oversight and Accountability Committee looking at, you know, why is telework uh, still so high? They're looking for more data and information from agencies. And they covered a lot of ground in this hearing just last week. But one of the things that they did point out was the matter of office space and specifically looking at agency headquarters in the D.C. area. Right. That was my question. They're concerned primarily with government-owned space at this point in this hearing and not the amount of excessive leased space, which is kind of another topic, really. Correct. Yeah, it's it's a little bit uh, complicated to look at both. But for this one, they're particularly looking at, you know, how well are agencies utilizing that space? So that makes it a question that's broader than just you know, capacity or the amount of people going into the office. There's all there's questions that run a little bit deeper, according to the Government Accountability Office, on how uh, that all operates. And do they have figures on how much of federally owned space headquarters type buildings are actually occupied now on average? So there was a report earlier this year, and in the first quarter of 2023, we saw uh, from the Government Accountability Office's analysis that 17 of the 24 agencies they looked at were at just about 25% capacity. That was one concern that the lawmakers had in the House Oversight Committee hearing, and specifically Arizona Republican Andy Biggs had more to say about that. No agency... Uh, the federal government was utilizing more than 50% of their headquarters office space. The top quartile, average utilization rate was 35%. USAID and HHS fell into the second quartile, each with about a 23% utilization rate. SSA was in the bottom quartile of the agency surveyed along with HUD, GSA, OPM, USD, and SBA. Each of those agencies averaged 9% building utilization. That's 9%. 9%. And when he says utilization, then how do they measure that? Because there's closets and hallways and places that are not occupied by cubicular federal employees. Exactly. There is a lot of complicated nature to measuring how much space can actually be utilized. The way that GAO measures it is they compare the total federal building's capacity against how much space the agency actually uses. So in other terms, the way that they, uh, the measurements they look at are usable square feet versus how many people enter the building on a workday. And you know, the General Services Administration, GSA, they set a baseline of about 180 square feet per employee. That's what agencies should strive for. But even now, GAO is saying, OK, well, based on, you know, the hybrid work environment and telework, and it seems like things are going that route, that number is probably outdated and maybe there isn't even that much space necessary. So they're telling agencies, you know, go back to the drawing board, think about you know, how else can you downsize? Uh, and it is very complicated the way that agencies have to measure this. And I think it's it's hard for them to figure out exactly how much space they need, which is another problem. Sure. So cynics would say, well, let's just simply allocate 300 
square feet per employee, and suddenly the occupancy looks pretty good. Right. There, I guess that's that's one way to look at it. But, uh, you know, I think that one other thing that is really important to point out here and that GAO has emphasized is that even if a building was at full capacity, 100% of staff were in a building, it would still only be two-thirds utilized. So that kind of points to the fact that, you know, telework does add to this. It does affect the building and office space utilization rate, but it's not, you know, even if that even if everyone was in the office, it wouldn't totally solve the issue. And I think that's what GAO has been uh, trying to say over several reports this year. Right. So if a building is third, a third utilized, then it's really 50 percent unoccupied based on that two thirds of maximum. Because, again, there's square footage that is not occupiable, but still is part of the square footage of a building like closets and utility space and that kind of thing. And so if it's not simply telework, then why are these buildings underutilized, do people think? What do they testify? One issue that GAO has pointed to and, um, you know, that keeps coming up is just simply the age of federal buildings. They were built, you know, for example, at the Commerce Department, their uh, headquarters office was built 100 years ago. And, of course, the way that the modern office place works and functions means a lot of those spaces that would have been used back decades ago aren't really applicable today. And it's hard to convert that space into things that are usable. Then you throw in the wrench of telework, too. It can become really complicated, one, not only to measure uh, how much space you need, but also to figure out a solution for that going forward. In other words, some of these old buildings could be functionally obsolete, really, in terms of the modern workforce needs. Right. And, you know, I I will point out that one agency, the Commerce Department that I alluded to, they talked about increasing utilization a little bit at this hearing last week. Uh, Jeremy Pelter is Commerce's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration. The department's headquarters saw the average daily occupancy increase from 24 percent in the third quarter of FY22 to now 42 percent, ending the fourth quarter of FY23, the most recent full quarter. The department anticipates that this upward trend will continue. So then the bottom line is more people will be coming in, does he say? That seems to be the implication he didn't specifically say in that case. But it is interesting to point out that the Commerce Department is on the upper end of things. So even at 42 percent, less than half uh, utilization, they're one of the best agencies from that GAO report. Did you know the Commerce Department used to have an aquarium in the basement that was a big visitor and tourist site? I did not know that. (laughs) I'd be curious if it was still there. (laughs) Oh, it's not still there anymore. But that was kind of one of the strange things of Washington, that Commerce Department had an aquarium. (laughs) And I guess maybe there's a fishbowl or two here and there around the offices. So no conclusions and no real action or anything, just kind of admiring the problem of of buildings getting cobwebs. I think it's going to be an ongoing problem. Lawmakers on the committee, they talked about it a lot. They talked about a lot of other issues that they're uh, concerned about related to telework. I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, agencies are still rolling out their return to office plans. So a lot of this stuff has, you know, yet to come to fruition, and we'll just kind of see how things go. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.